0: Well, good evening, everyone. Let me have my own welcome to you. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Kate, for reading. And we are going to be looking at that passage over the next few minutes, so if you'd like to keep that uh, open, that would be a great help to me, and probably even more of a help to you, I think. Let's pray, shall we, as we uh, come to God's Word. The, uh, the writer of Proverbs says that the fear of the laws is the beginning of wisdom. And Lord, we as we come towards a, to a passage where we have, examples both of, uh, that fear of you and fear of your commandments, and those who despise them, Lord, we pray that we would be those who fear you and know what it is to be wise. Lord, we've sung that the cry of our hearts is to bring you praise, and that is not just a, some words that we sing, but that is indeed our prayer tonight. That we would be, uh, men and women who bow the knee at your throne. As you honour you as King, Lord help us. As uh, help me as I speak. Help us as we listen. Hear your word, to and to obey it. For the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. We are in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 27, and you can find it on page 304 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. I wonder how tightly you hold on to your principles. Some people uh, hold on to them very, very tightly. And for other people, they're a little bit more, uh, shall we say, um, loose. Uh, There was a survey taken a few years ago in the United States about what people would be willing to do for $10 million. Quite a big sum of money, I guess. Uh, The results are very interesting. Let me give you a little snapshot of them. Of the two-thirds polls... Sorry, of of all of them polls, two-thirds who were polled, agreed to one or more of the following. This is pretty shocking, so uh, so bear, bear, bear with me. Brace yourself. 25% of the two-thirds said that they would be happy to abandon their entire family. It's for $10 million. Think about this. 25% of the two-thirds would say that they would be happy to abandon their church. It gets worse, trust me. 23% said that they would be happy to turn to prostitution for a week. 16% would be prepared to leave their spouse. 10% would be happy to commit perjury to acquit a known murderer. And 3% would put their children up for adoption. <laughs> it's not always easy, is it, to stick with our principles. We can say that we're high-minded and uh, that we never do anything like that. And we'd always do, do what we tell. But actually, when the stakes are pretty high and when the pressure's on, sometimes it's pretty tricky and maybe it's a little wonder that the Amalekite in our, uh, in our passage tonight was, uh, was right happy to tell what he thought was a little white lie in order to grab some kind of government reward or some unspecified reward. What is more surprising, I think, is that David is the man who refuses to bend and he stays true to his principles. Uh, for those of you who've been with us uh, over the last few weeks at uh, Holy Trinity, you'll know that we're in a series looking at the life of David David, the scriptures tell us, was a man after God's own heart. Uh, We looked uh, a couple of weeks ago at uh, David and Goliath, that famous uh, story. Uh, We looked last week at the relationship of David and Jonathan, how they were uh, uh, deep friendships and the value of of cultivating uh, those kind of deep friendships. This week, we jump on quite a long way in the story. You'll have to bear with me. I'm conscious I'm compressing an awful lot in here that deserves probably a lot of sermons on their own, but we can't do that. We are jumping forward several steps, and I will do my best to try and uh, sort things out. Essentially, what has happened, David has got more and more popular. His fame has increased, so he and Saul is the king of Israel, and David is almost the kind of young pretender, I guess we could say. He knows that he's going to be king. Samuel has made that very clear, back in, uh, back, back all the way, uh, further, further behind in uh, 1 Samuel, and as David's fame has increased, Saul has got really, really jealous. He has um, got to the stage where actually he wants to to kill um, David to get rid of him. And as Saul has become more and more jealous, David has been forced out into hiding with a group of his, his sort of friends, a little bit like Robin Hood, hanging out in Sherwood Forest, I guess. He's been had to to uh, to, to flee the uh, the area and, and take refuge. He's even managed to uh, find his way to the city of the Philistines, which many of you will know are uh, Israel's great enemies at the moment. Whilst he's done that, it gets even more complex, it's like P.G. Woodhouse novel here, it goes into the stage where the Philistines have declared war on the Israelites and they're all having a, a, a basically in the middle of a battle. And it's culminated in this battle at Gilboa where Saul and his sons die. You can read that in the chapter just before this in uh, 1 Samuel 31. Originally, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were just one book altogether. they have been broken up by, for some unknown reason. And so we pick the story up just at that point. Saul and his sons have been killed, and David is uh, waiting at Ziklag. And I think the question that this passage poses for us is this question of how is David going to become the king? The scriptures make it very clear that he is going to be the king. Uh, Samuel has anointed him further back. He is going to become the king. That's, that's going to happen. But how is it going to happen? Is it going to be uh, a situation where he waits for God's timing? Or is he going to steal it for himself? Is he going to say, look, it's going to happen in my timing, and I'm going to grab it from him? It's not an easy passage, this one. I've never heard a sermon on it. I've never really done much, uh, much looking at it until now. And I have to say, it's been a real taxing one to wrestle with. But I think the big lesson for us is that ultimately, whatever life's pressures, kingdom principles have to govern kingdom life. What God says has to go in his kingdom. If we claim to follow God, we've got to do so faithfully at all times. Despite whatever temptations there are to do otherwise, whatever pressures there are, we must hold on to God's principles. And I think there are three principles in particular that stand out uh, from this passage for me, and they're all modelled by David. So that's where we're going. Seeing the three principles... Uh, that are modelled by David. So anyway, without any further ado, the first one is a confidence in God's promises. Have a look down at verse 1. The writer says, After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites, and he stayed in Ziklag for two days. My uh, old vicar, when I was at university, they used to say, you had to, quite often, uh, beware of re- reading, reading sometimes into the blank spaces of Scripture. And I think this is one of those situations the note at the start of our passage is one of waiting. Do you see that? David returned from defeating the Amalekites and he stayed in Ziklag for two days. A little bit of context. David has gone back to Ziklag, which is the city where he was staying in uh, chapter 31. He's, been defeat- he's defeated a band of marauding Amalekites who are linked to the Philistines, who've attacked Ziklag and you know, done all kinds of horrible things. He's gone off after them, defeated them, and he's now come back. And at the same time, he's he's resting up for a few days. At the same time, he must surely be aware that this great battle is going on elsewhere at Gilboa. He knows the situation. He's not stupid. He knows full well that the Philistines and the Israelites are at it like hammer and tongs, and that the consequences of that battle have got immense repercussions, both for him as an individual, but also for Israel as a nation. It's a little bit like, I I, I don't know, I guess um, I'm a a sports fan, I, I love my cricket, and, uh, you know, I had to go to a, to a wedding the other week when the Ashes were being played. And I couldn't wait to find out what the score was. I mean, I, I love being at the wedding. They're great friends of ours. Don't get me wrong. The, the wedding was great. The sermon was interesting. The, you know, the wine was, was very good as well. But I was burning to find out what was going on in the Ashes match. And David must have been like that with the battle. I mean, he, this is high-stakes stuff here, isn't it? This is potentially the future of Israel. And he knows that he's the king. I mean, if, if Saul dies, surely that has got massive implications for him. And what would you expect if you were in that situation? Surely you'd expect that you'd be itching to find out something about it. You'd be sending scouts out, you know, what's going on? searching the grapevine, see what's on Twitter, whatever happens, or on the rolling news. And yet there's no hint of that from our passage, is there? Rather, David seems to be prepared to wait for the Lord. And I don't think that's actually surprising. If we look through David's life, that is a very consistent note throughout all the way. Uh, Back in uh, in chapter 16... um, we we do see Samuel um, as the instrument of God, anointing David and saying, "This is the man who is going to be king." He uh, he goes to visit uh, Samuel's, uh, sorry, uh, um, David's brothers and his family, and you'll know the story, I'm sure. They they line up all the brothers and they pass along the line, and everyone keeps thinking, "Oh, it's going to be this one." He's a bit more tall, he's a little bit more impressive, and the Lord says to Samuel, "No, this is the man." This is the one whose heart was right. It's the one who outwardly looks unimpressive, David, the one who's out, who's out with the sheep. And he's the one who has been chosen. So, that, so, so David knew that he was going to be the king, and everyone else knew it as well. And we've got to this stage where, where as we said, David has, has become the, the enemy of Saul, and during that period, he has had many times of waiting, but many seasons where he could have done something to speed the process up a bit. Twice, we're told in 1 Samuel, he had an opportunity to kill Saul. You can read that in chapters 24 and uh, 26. It's well worth going away and reading it. Twice he has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he's, uh, he's urged on by his, his, uh, his band of merry men, come on, this is the moment, this is your time, do it. And yet twice he refuses Despite this great temptation to interfere in God's plans, to do what, um, you know, to do what he, surely he, he wants to, to do, to become the king, he's content, I think, to wait on God's timing to accomplish his plans and his purposes. It seems to me that waiting is one of the great themes that runs through the Bible from, uh, in the Old Testament, you have this great sense of, of waiting. Right from, from the fall, so when, uh, when human beings rebelled against God, they went away from them uh, in, in the Garden of Eden, there is this great sense of looking forward and waiting for God to do something, God to act. Uh, and slowly it's sort of um, it's un- unpacked a little bit more as you get prophets coming and, uh, and uh, more and more of God's plan is revealed and points ahead to the coming of the Lord Jesus, who, of course, is the answer to humankind's problems the the one who in his death and resurrection conquered sin and death forever and yet when we get to new testament there's also a note of longing isn't there because of course we know that the lord jesus has come and that sin and death is defeated we are at the same time waiting for his return and that's the situation we find ourselves in at the moment isn't there waiting is a, is a big theme in the scriptures lots of people i think think that waiting in in, in the Bible and as a Christian it's a little bit like um, that that play Waiting for Godot by um, Beckett I don't know if you know it but it's a a bit of a depressing play in many ways by um, by Samuel Beckett you basically have a couple of characters who hang around the entire play waiting for some fictional figure called Godot to turn up and lots of people that is a perfect allegory of what being a Christian is about basically you're hanging around waiting for some well some nobody really to turn up why don't you get a life how deluded are you? And yet David's example shows us that that is not true. Look back with me at um, chapter 26. I think this is quite important. Chapter 26 of uh, 1 Samuel. And right towards the end of chapter 26. So David, this is the second time when David has had an opportunity to kill Saul. And he's been urged on to, um, to, to kill him. Let me start from verse 22. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord gave you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. It seems to me that David's confidence is born out of a belief and a trust in God's promises. You see that? He says, The Lord rewards everyone for his righteousness and faithfulness. He knows that. God honours those who put their trust in him, and he promises that he will accomplish his plans in his good timing. David's waiting wasn't just some sort of aimless, purposeless waiting, but it was born out of a deep confidence in a God who acted and a God who's in control and a God who is at work. Waiting's not easy, is it? Um, Some people find it easier than others, but I think particularly when we live in an age... Uh, where everything seems to be instant, whether it's on the internet or whether it's, uh, you know, Domino's Pizza or something, you ring it up and basically you've got it. Whatever you want, you can have it and you can have it instantly. We had an experience very recently. We uh, crashed our car and we had to wait around for three weeks. Can you believe it? Three weeks to get a new one. It seems like eternity. We live in an age where we want things instantly. And yet so often, actually, the best comes when we have to wait for it. So often in God's economy... He works in a way that's very different to ours. There's a very old story told of an um, American millionaire. He visited Trinity College in Oxford, which has uh, extensive grounds. And this American millionaire was very, very impressed by the lawns. And he uh, so sidled up to one of the gardeners and said, um, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd really love one of these lawns. What, what can, I, can, can we come to some kind of deal about how I can get one? And the gardener said, well, yeah, you know, I guess, uh, of course, you, you, know, you can have it if you want. Um, you, you'll need some some, uh, some earth, first of all, you know, some good quality soil. And the American military said, yes, fine, a couple of hundred tons, not a problem, you can do that. Well, what, what more do I need? Well, the gardener said, well, you know, have some grass? Grass is always important. You know, you need some good quality turf. You can't, can't do anything without like that. Yeah, that's fine, it's all right, that's okay. What, what, what more do I need? And the gardener said, well, you know, you've got to roll it and you've got to cut it and, uh, you know, you can do that." So that's not a problem, that's okay. And, and what next? And the gardener said, well, looking at this, it's about 200 years. If you want to get this stuff, it's a silly story, isn't it? But actually, it sums up a principle that is often in there in life that actually, if we want the best, we often have to wait for it. And certainly in God's economy, God works on a time scale that is very different to us. And I can say for my own life that is often true. When I was um, sort of thinking about whether I was going to be um, a vicar or not, I was. Um, I was kind of stuck in the, in the selection process. The, the, the Church of England has a very lengthy selection process. You don't just choose to become a vicar like that. You have to go through all kinds of, kinds of uh, pathways. Uh, and it got to the point where I was sort of in the middle of it, but it wasn't working very, basically as quickly as I wanted to. I wanted to start Theological College. I was pretty sure in my own mind that was what God was calling me to do. And I wanted to start that September. And I was stuck in the middle of it, and basically it clearly wasn't going to happen. It wasn't moving quick enough for it. And at the time, I was incredibly frustrated. Oh, Lord, why have I got to do this? I don't like my job. I want to get out of this. Why do I have to do this? And yet, when I look back, I can just see how wonderfully God was fitting things together. I wouldn't be here in Trinity if it hadn't worked, because I would have been a year too early, and things wouldn't have worked. When we trust the Lord Jesus, he promises that he has a plan, and we can have confidence in his plans and his promises. That is the great lesson from David. I don't know what you're facing at the moment. Perhaps... um, some people, it's, it's maybe illness that doesn't seem to, to want to go away. Maybe it's situation of unemployment. There are plenty of people I know who are facing you know, a future where it's, it's, you know, it doesn't seem like, like there's any plans out there, there's any work. Maybe it's singleness. Perhaps you're sort of saying, oh you know, I'd love to get married someday, or I'd love to find somebody to share my life with, and that doesn't seem to be happening. Whatever it is, it's very tempting, isn't it, in those situations to think that God's given up on us and that he doesn't care about us. And yet, surely the lesson from David's life is he had to wait, and yet he had confidence in God, God's promises. God promised that he would never leave him, that he had a plan and a purpose for him, and that he would do that. Let's take heart, shall we, from David's example. Anyway, the second thing that I think David illustrates for us is a concern for God's precepts. Come turn back with me to uh, chapter 1 of uh, 2 Samuel. That's on page uh, 304. And look down at uh, verses 14 to 16. So the Amalekites has come up to uh, to David with his reports. And David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hands to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of his men and he said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David has listened to the Amalekite's story. He's come up with this story that basically he was the guy who did a sort of mercy killing on Saul. Saul had been uh, been wounded and injured. He was going to be surrounded by the Philistines, and the Amalekite claims that uh, basically he, you know, finished him off just to, uh, you know, just to uh, make it an easy death. And here he is. He's brought the uh, the, the kingly bracelets and the uh, the the, uh, the crown as proof that he's done it. And he's brought it to David, and he wants a reward, basically. And David's listened to this, and I guess we might expect if we were with the Amalekite that he would give him a reward, and yet suddenly he turns around and orders him instead to be killed. What is going on here? What, how on earth do we make sense of this? David, the man after God's own heart, killing the three. It seems to me that the answer is in these verses, verses 14. David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? The, the Amalekite had shown absolutely no concern whatsoever for God's commandments, for God's precepts. He'd simply done what he alone thought was okay. Why not? Why don't I you know, do this? It's okay. And if I lie to, to get an answer, that's, that's fine as well. And we can understand David's response a little bit when we consider this in more detail. I think he'd ignored God's rules in two ways in Malachi. Firstly, he'd ignored God's rules about the sanctity of Life. The Old Testament law is very, very clear that uh, human life is valuable. God values human life. He doesn't just say it's, it's arbitrary that you can, you know, that you can just take life when you want to, whether that's an unborn child or somebody at the end of their age or even somebody in the prime of life. No, life matters to God. Back in the, in the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment in Exodus 20, and then it's preached again in Deuteronomy, says that, you know, thou shalt not murder, if you want to put it in the uh, authorised version. And so, to put simply, it's very simplifying this, when David kills this man, essentially he is putting into action what the law says should be the punishment for somebody who kills that. The Old Testament law said it should essentially be a life for a life. It's, technically it's called lex talion. It's, uh, it's a life for a life, tooth for a tooth, eye for an eye. So quite simply, David is just applying the law. He, he is, as the, now the king, he is, uh, he, is, he is to take the life of the Amalekite. The Amalekite has committed murder, or so he claims, and therefore to murder is to take God's role as being somebody's judge. But it's more than that, actually. It's not just a question of murder. He has raised his hand against God's chosen leader of his people, the king. Most ancient civilizations had a king. There's nothing particularly unusual about that. Israel was a bit later on in getting one, but they still had one all the same. The king in Israel is incredibly significant, he, yes, he's, a, he's the ruler. He's the, uh, the the one who is appointed to be the kind of the you know the military leader, the civil leader, etc., etc. But he's not only that. He is appointed by God, and he is also a channel of His blessing. He's one of the ones who leads them spiritually. He's a spiritual leader. Uh, even more than that, the Old Testament makes it very clear that Israel's king, the whole system of the, the monarchy and the kingship, is supposed to be a foreshadow of the day when God would send his ultimate king, his great king, uh, to rule the nations. In uh, that famous passage, you remember it, in, um, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, which we often read at Christmas, don't we? And um, there's that, that wonderful prophecy about that forecoming king. Let me read it, the verses that Isaiah says, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God everlasting father, prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. These human kings of Israel were to point ahead to God's great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for this Amalekite to have said that he has killed the king is essentially to say that he has set himself up against God, and ultimately against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You can see now, can't you, why David is so angry. How dare this man set himself up against the plans and purposes of God that will find their completion in the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder David cannot let him just live and be done with it. And by contrast, David's desire is to honour God and obey him. Did you notice that he's asked the Amalekite, why were you not afraid to lift up your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. The Bible often talks about fear of God, being afraid of God. And we often think of fear, don't we, as sort of this cringing terror. Uh, That's not really how the the Bible speaks of it. To to fear God is not about living in terror or living in fear of some vengeful God who's going to strike you down, but it means more to revere him and, and to want to obey him because we love him and because he is worthy of our obedience. David's concern for God's honour and for his precepts, for those things that he has laid down, stems from his love for him. It's a fear that is grounded in love, and he cannot see why the Amalekite can't share that. There was once a uh, Polish prince who carried a little locket on, uh, around his neck, of, and inside the locket was a portrait of his father. His father had been, uh, been a prince before, and the story goes that he always often used to take it out, and he'd open it up, and he used to say, let me do nothing I'm becoming so excellent a father. He would use this sort of the, the memory of his father, this, this great figure who everyone had looked up to, as a stimulus for his own, uh, his own life. Let me do nothing that brings shame on my father. I think it's a wonderful little illustration. I don't know if it's true or not, but never mind. It still it illustrates a wonderful principle that actually that is how kingdom servants should be. We should want to live in a way that brings honour to our Heavenly Father. Let us do nothing that goes against so excellent a Father. And so I guess the question for us tonight, it, it, how is God calling us to honour and to fear him? I guess for some of us it will be at the most basic that we know that in our heart of hearts we are living against the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us that all of us have gone against God. We all want to be our own gods really, our own kings of our own hearts. And that is rebellion. It goes against God and it breaks his heart and ultimately it will lead to an eternity without him. And yet the best way, the way that God calls for us is for us to live under his kingship, for him to be ruler ruler of our hearts. For us to bow the knee to him and to say that he is Lord, he knows best. To trust that he's done everything possible to make us right with him and that he knows best and is Lord. And for some of you that is going to be the call tonight. You need to bow the needs of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what it means to honour God and obey him. That is his call. I guess for a lot of us, though, we will have done that a long time ago. We can look back, and maybe that's a great moment for us to look back on. And yet we know that whilst we call Jesus Lord, we call him our king, and we want to obey God, actually there's lots of areas that are still a bit off limits. Maybe it's that, um, that, that relationship that we know isn't quite honouring to, to God, that relationship with somebody who isn't, doesn't think like we do, doesn't love the Lord Jesus and is drawing us away from him. Maybe it's an issue of money. Perhaps we've never really sorted out the issue of money with God. Maybe we're spending it on things all by ourselves. We've never really said that it's it's recognised that it's God's and it needs to be given first and foremost to him before we do anything else. Maybe it's our use of time. Maybe we spend lots of time on, I don't know, things that just aren't particularly helpful when we could be spending time Serving him. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe many, many things we could pick out. But ultimately, the fear of the Lord should have its place in our hearts, shouldn't it? We should want to love God, fear him, and obey him because we respect him. Because he is the one who, as we said in our creed, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. One day we will have to give an account of our lives to him. David knows that. Why was this Amalekite not afraid to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed? Yes, God is our Father. Yes, of course he is. We can call him Father. What a great privilege. But he is also the Lord, and we must obey him. Thirdly, and finally, the last principle that David uh, embodies is a compassion for God's people. Look uh, at verse 12 in uh, chapter 1, verse 11 even. Uh, Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes, and they tore them. They mourned, and they wept, and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel. Because they had fallen by the sword. David gets presented with uh, Saul's kingly insignia, and it, basically the story is all too clear that Saul is dead, and he's absolutely overwhelmed with grief for Saul and for Israel. And his response is to compose this, this poem that we have as our second half of our, our reading. We're not going to look at all of it in depth, it really deserves a sermon on its own, but there are a couple of things to, to pick out. It's a, it's a great, um, great passage. In fact, some people have called it some of the best perch in the Old Testament, but I'm not really a judge of that, so. There we go. His main cry in it, and so the main theme, is the thing that bookends it. You see it uh, at the start, verse 19, and, uh, and then at the end, uh, verse 27, how the mighty have fallen. There's this great uh, theme of, of, of grief for the loss of God's heroes and, uh, and for the shame of Israel. The, the first section of it is, is really based around a compassion for Israel as all of God's people. Uh, David pictures, uh, look at verses uh, 19 and 20. David has this picture of, of uh, messengers going to, uh, to, to bring the news of Israel's defeat to the nearest Philistine city. See that. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Escalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. David is absolutely horrified at the thought that Israel, as God's people, are going to be the source of uh, mockery amongst their enemies. Yes, it's a military defeat, but even more so, it's a religious embarrassment. Did you see how he talks about the daughters of the uncircumcised? It's a small world, but it's a, it's, a, it's a very important one. It's basically saying the people who are outside of God's love, who are outside of God's covenant, who don't obey him, are going to be laughing at him. They're laughing at God's people, and they're laughing at God. What uh, an embarrassment. And no wonder David says in uh, verse, uh, verse 18 that uh, the men of Judah should be taught this lament, that you know, lest they ever forget this embarrassment. It's such a uh, moment of shame. But then David's compassion switches away from the kind of the corporate of Israel to more personal. Look down at verses 21 and uh, following, sorry, verses 23 and following. He switches into this. To Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, and they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. David suddenly gets more and more personal. His grief focuses on uh, Saul and Jonathan. It's no surprise. This comes right in the middle of the, uh, of the passage. That's usually a sign that the writer wants us to, to focus on it. Notice how the lament focuses on their skills as warriors. He picks out something that would have been well-known. They were, they were warriors. But then he also moves on. He highlights that they were qualities. They also had they were they people of love, grace, and faithfulness. And you see that verse 23. In life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. And I guess we might expect a description of that of Jonathan. We heard last week, didn't we, when Elizabeth was preaching that that, Jonathan was the friend above all friends really to to David. And yet what is surprising is that David doesn't just say that of Jonathan, he actually says it of Saul as well. Saul, this man who's been harassing him to the point of death, who's wanted to try and kill him. Despite all that David has endured at the hands of Saul, he chooses to love him and obey him. Um, the uh, English is a, is a funny language. We only have one word for love in the New Testament. The New Testament is written in Greek, and it has four. Strange enough, the one that is used most regularly is the word agape. That's the one that the, the New Testament writers tend to tend to use a lot when they speak of kind of Christian love, God's love, particularly. God's love is used to describe as agape, and what it means is it's this sacrificial love, I guess that is always working solely for somebody else's benefit. It's, it hasn't got any self-interest in it, essentially. It's a sacrificial love. It involves giving things up, but it's always going to be for somebody else's benefit. And, and the main explanation of it that we get in the New Testament is found in the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in this little bit in Matthew chapter 5, and it's verses 43 to 48. You can turn with me if you want to. It's, it's interesting to read this. I know we've done a bit of flicking around today, but I think it's helpful. And it's strange that The way in which the Bible describes Agape most in the Sermon on the Mount is a love for enemies. Jesus says these words, this is Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That is, we're to regard our enemies, the people who actually by nature we should hate the most as in the way that God regards them, as we should love them and pray for those who persecute us. And why should we do this? Well, Jesus says it's basically so we should be like God. That's what it means when it says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. It's just a, another way of saying, so that you may be like God. And it's curious, isn't it, that it's God who shows us that actually what this is really like. He models it for us in that as when St. Paul tells us in Romans that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, through the death of his son. And so do you see that David's love for Saul in this chapter is a beautiful picture of the love that God has through the Lord Jesus Christ for us. It's a beautiful picture of that love, that whilst we were enemies, by nature we've turned against God, we deserve nothing from him. We have hated him to the point of wanting to be rid of him, and yet God loves us so much that he sent his son. This is a beautiful picture that points head to debt. Not easy, but it's deeply powerful, isn't it, this sort of love, because it's so radical. There's a story told about um, George Washington who had a friend called Peter Miller who was a Baptist minister, and um, Peter Miller was well respected by lots of people, um, but he had a, there's a certain man called Whitman who constantly had a go at him, was always trying to undermine him publicly or privately, whatever he has to do. Eventually, um, Whitman, for reasons unspecified, found himself on uh, trial for treason against uh, the government. And ultimately the case went against him and he was due to, to, uh, to be put to death. And amazingly, Peter Miller, so it's said, walked 80 miles to plead for Whitman's life in front of the courts. He went to George Washington himself as the, uh, the, the one who, could, who could, uh, to, could rescind the charges to plead for his life. And Washington said, well, you know, why are you doing this? You know, this guy means nothing to you. And he said, yes, he is my enemy. But I'm called to love him, and I want you to drop the charges. And apparently the story goes that um, that Washington did drop those charges. That sort of love, love for an enemy, when it goes, cuts against the grain, is incredibly radical, and it's deeply powerful, isn't it? Uh, I don't know about you, but I I, I find it incredibly hard. It is very easy, isn't it, to give in to what the world says and what our inner self says to hate those who don't like us or are always doing us down. Maybe for you, you've got a colleague you know at work, you're slightly dreading tomorrow, you just know they're always having a go at Krishna. What have you done on Sunday? Oh, what a waste of time. Oh, silly you. And you just, frankly, you just really can't put up with it anymore. Maybe you've got a family member who... Has hurt you in the past, who has said some really awful things, has done some terrible things, and actually it's easier, you think, just to leave it and not to go back and not to love them. I don't know what it is, but to love an enemy is to imitate God and it's to show his love for the world. St. John says, We love because he first loved us. The whole reason we can love others is because the Lord Jesus Christ has laid down his life on our behalf. We love because he loved us. David, loved Saul because he knew that he was loved by God and that he in turn must love his people well let's draw things to a close shall we we talked about principles at the start there was some I don't know how much you know about the philosopher Rousseau but he was not shy on broadcasting his views on child rearing if you've ever read uh, his work Emile talks about the upbringing of children he even went so far as to brag that nobody was as devoted a father as him And yet, actually, if you look at his life, he was the same man who abandoned the five children that were born by his mistress. Ultimately for him, what he said and what he did didn't really stack up in the same way. His principles counted for nothing. And yet the great lesson of our passage is that no matter what, God's kingdom principles must always govern kingdom life. Whether it's trusting God's promises or his plans when life is seeming unfair, when we just don't know where God is and we wonder why we're having to wait so long. Whether it's we need to honour his precepts when everyone else is saying, who cares, doesn't matter, or whether it's choosing to love an enemy when in our heart of hearts we really just don't want to. To love God is to love his principles and to obey them. And I guess the question for us is what does that look like for us? I think perhaps the best way for us to do this is maybe just to take a few moments to be quiet. This will there's lots of things in this passage, and it touches in many different ways. Uh, maybe let me suggest we just take a moment to be quiet and to ask the Lord to put his finger on anything in our hearts that we know that we need to, to put right with him. Um, as I say, the great lesson of our passage is that God wants to be Lord of our lives. And actually, if we call him Lord, then we must honour his principles. For some of us, it's going to be coming into the kingdom for the first time. That may be you. And if you'd like to do that, you're more than welcome to speak with us afterwards. But for others, it's an area of our lives that we know has not, is not pleasing to God. So let's take a moment to be quiet, and then I'll pray for us, shall we, as we close. Lord Jesus, we know that in our hearts, we are by nature against you. We don't love God's principles. We don't love those kingdom principles, and yet we know that in the life of God's kingdom, those things must happen, and we must love them, and we must do them. And Lord, we pray um, for ourselves that whatever you've put your finger on in our hearts tonight, that you would give us grace and the power of your Spirit to live lives that are pleasing to you. We thank you so much for the life of David, a man who, though was flawed, is a man who is after your heart. And Lord, we want to be people who our men and women, who who it could be said of are men and women after your heart. Lord, help us, we pray, this evening and this week, to live lives that honour you and love you. For your sake we pray this. Amen.